Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. You'll find the notes in the bulletin if you want to read along, uh, along with the notes. <clears throat> and this morning we will see the Lord Jesus calling sinners to repentance and joy. Um, we're reading in one unit a, a section that may not initially seem to be one unit. It's the calling of Levi, or as the other gospels call him, Matthew. And then Jesus speaking about this parable of wineskins and old cloths and old and new wine. But as we read it and as we study it, I trust that we will see that, that the Lord has much for us here this morning. So let's begin our time by reading Luke chapter 5, 27 through 39. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins, and no one after drinking old wine desires the new, for he says the old is good. Now, last week, as we looked at Jesus healing the paralytic, we, we introduced a new character or a new set of characters or villains, if you will, into Luke's gospel. The Pharisees and the scribes made their first appearance. They'd come from all around Jerusalem and Judea to see Jesus. And as he was teaching, a man was lowered down and he forgave the man's sins. And they, they understood it clicked, the, the claim to authority and actually the claim to deity that Jesus was making. And they were offended for they reasoned, who can forgive sins but God alone? Exactly. But because of the miracle that followed and the man being raised up, they didn't, at least Luke does not record them, publicly challenging him. And the entire crowd was amazed and glorified God. He just raised a man who had been a paralytic. And so even though they were offended at what he said, they didn't dare take him on. Here, however, they actually bring the challenge first to his disciples, and then as they get bolder still, to him. The first time, there's two challenges from the Pharisees. Two, two, they're offended twice. First, over who he eats and drinks with. And then the simple fact that he eats and drinks at all. First they come to the disciples, and then as they get bolder still, they come to Jesus. 
And then in chapter six, we'll see, they actually begin plotting and looking, seeking out opportunities to try to trap him. You see down at the end, in fact, there's the end of their appearance in Luke's gospel. In chapter six, verse six, on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogues and was teaching, and a man was there whose hand was withered, and the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. And then when Jesus confounds them, verse 11, they are filled with fury and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. So this is on the trajectory of the Pharisees. Initially, they show up potentially hopeful. They, they came for some reason thinking they'd see something, a prophet, a teacher. And immediately they're offended Jesus' claims to deity. Jesus' claims to authority. They're going to get offended again, twice more in our passage. And then, by the time they show up in 6, they're actively looking to trap him. They're actively looking to accuse him. And all the while, Jesus here is calling sinners to repentance and joy. There's two major metaphors that this this text gives for Jesus and ways of thinking about him that I think are helpful. Because as we're studying this, what Luke's doing in this section is he's developing and informing our understanding of who Jesus is. Many titles have been stacked up. He's the Son of God, the Holy One of God. He is the Messiah. He identifies himself in chapter 4 as the Lord's anointed. We saw Peter fall at his feet calling him Lord. We saw the the leper call him Lord. We, We now see he's the one who has the authority to forgive sins, which only God himself has. All of this is being done by Luke to prepare us for Jesus' first at-length teaching in chapter 6. You'll notice in chapter 6, starting in verse 20, and all the way through the end of the chapter is what's called the Sermon on the Plain. It's our first extended teaching of Jesus. And as we've been reading through this, we keep hearing that Jesus was teaching here, and he was teaching there, and he was teaching in their synagogues. But up to this point, other than the snippet we see in Nazareth, we don't actually know what he's teaching. And so Luke, in preparing us for that, is stacking up the authority. The reason's going to be that when Jesus teaches, we need to sit up and pay attention because this is the one who forgives sins. This is the Lord of the Sabbath. This is the one who brings a cleansing and a forgiveness greater than the law of Moses ever could. This is the Lord God. This is the one at whom you fall at his feet and say, yes, Lord. And so when he speaks, we obey. And and that's all setting this up for the Sermon on the Plain. So here, two metaphors for understanding who Jesus is. First, we're going to see that Jesus, the physician, and second, Jesus, the bridegroom. Jesus, the physician, and Jesus, the bridegroom. After this, he went and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. Now, this this man, Levi, is identified in the other Gospels as Matthew. It's not uncommon for men in those days to have two names or a Greek name and a Jewish name. There's many examples of people um, who are called different things, so there's no problem there. Luke calls him Levi. We'll refer to him as Levi. And he is, point A, Jesus calls an unlikely disciple. He is an unlikely disciple. The tax collectors in Jesus' day, were despised by the Jews. The Jews were under the thumb of Rome. And they were given some freedom to, to run themselves, but not much. They paid heavy taxes. 
And they resented that. I mean, if you remember, the great Jewish hope was the coming messianic kingdom. When we studied through the book of Zechariah, God promising to restore their fortunes, to rebuild their walls, to set them aloft among the nations, a city on a hill, the, the Gentiles would come to worship, and here they are under a pagan king, under the thumb of the Roman Empire, a footnote in world history. And, and, and men like Levi had bought tax franchises from Rome and were instilling these taxes on their fellow countrymen. You can imagine the sense of betrayal, the sense of disgust. Frequently, in fact, what we know from, like, say, Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector, because they had this power, they could overcharge and grift some off the top. And so not only were they sellouts to the enemy, but they were frequently immoral and unjust. And yet Jesus calls this man to be his disciple. It's marvelous, I, I think. It surprises the Pharisees. They're, they're, they're offended and, and surprised. But I think we should marvel because, praise the Lord, he does call unlikely disciples. He calls people like you and like me. Now, that we don't know what the backstory is. Luke's given us a context where the word has gone out about Jesus, the word has gone out about Jesus. Presumably, Levi has heard some things. I don't think Luke wants us to understand that Levi sees a stranger walk up, the stranger says, follow me, and Levi just says, okay. No, the, the, only, the only rational explanation for, for Levi's response is that just as we, reading through Luke's gospel, have been learning who Jesus is, and as Luke has repeatedly stated, the word went out, the word went out, the word spread, Levi has picked up some, or most, of what we've been picking up through Luke's gospel. So Jesus is walking along, and he sees a tax collector named Levi sitting at a tax booth. He's actually engaged in the very activity that would have been so offensive to his countrymen. He's actually engaged in tax collecting. And I want you to notice two things. First, Jesus' sovereign call and choice. Jesus' sovereign call and choice. We've already emphasized this matter when we were studying chapter 4. And Jesus was in his hometown, and they wanted to see miracles. And part of Jesus' answer to them is, you don't tell God when and where to show up. You don't tell God when and what to do. And Jesus has already demonstrated his sovereign choice. He calls Simon Peter. He chooses him. And, and here, Jesus sees Levi, and he chooses him, and he calls him. We don't know whether this was, was a revelation from the Spirit to him, but he called him, I believe, knowing he would follow. But also notice the, 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 the authority of his call. He just walks up to Levi and simply says two words, follow me. It's remarkable. It's his choice and it's his call. No explanation given. No, please follow me. Follow me and you'll live your best life now. Just follow me. And this tax collector does something amazing. Notice Levi's immediate obedience. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. This is the second time in this chapter we've heard this refrain. Luke is, is trying to teach us something about discipleship. If you look back up at verse 11... When Simon and his co-workers had the miraculous catch, he fell down at Jesus' feet 
Jesus recommissions him from now on. Do not be afraid, but from now on you'll be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Here again, we have a man called by Jesus to follow him, leaving everything to follow him. Again, this, this is teaching us what it means to be a disciple and a follower of Jesus. It means you, if you're going to follow Jesus Christ, if you think of yourself as a follower of Jesus Christ, part of what that means is you have no greater allegiance. You've put nothing ahead of him. There's nothing to which he can't claim in your life. Now, we, we know in picking up and, and leaving everything, it doesn't just mean he left his home. In, in a few verses, he's going to be throwing Jesus a banquet in his honor. But he forsakes his, his occupation. He forsakes, I believe, his sin, we'll see. And he follows Christ. I, I was told a good illustration of what this means, the difference of what it means to, to follow Christ fully or conditionally. I think a lot of us um, think that we are doing well when we put our plans together and we put together the things we want to do with our life and we think of all the things we want to accomplish and then we think we're doing well when we take this and you sort of imagine a sheet of paper with a list of all the things we want to do and we say, okay, God, I'm yours. Would you, would you sign off on what I want to accomplish? And the illustration I heard is that rather the difference is God hands you and he hands me a blank sheet and he says, sign. Well, Lord, what are you going to write there? Just sign, trust me. What if you write poverty? Sign. What if you write affliction? Sign. What if you write persecution? Sign. What if you write singleness? Sign. He forsook everything and followed Christ. And Luke, in repeating that phrase, is, is trying to teach Theophilus, he's trying to teach us what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And, you know, and we have to ask ourselves, have we, are we willing to leave everything and follow Christ. If there's anything where God's word, his spirit convicts us that we ought not to do, to forsake those things, if there's things his word and his spirit tells us we ought to do, will we do those things? But, but here, Levi responds rightly. We're gonna get some more insight into why that is, how that is. But Jesus calls this unlikely disciple who will go on to write a book of the Bible. He heeded the master's call he left everything and followed him. Next, Jesus attends an unsavory feast. Jesus attends an unsavory feast. He's called an unlikely disciple. Now he will go to an unsavory feast. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? An unsavory feast. So this man, Levi, who has, who's forsaken everything, wants to throw a, a dinner party in honor of Jesus. Levi celebrates and honors Jesus with his friends. And isn't this sort of the right response? He's, something's amazing has happened. The Lord, the master, has chosen him, has called him, and somehow Levi has has followed Jesus, and now what does he want to do? Does he want to keep it a secret? No. He wants all of his friends and all of his co-workers to meet with Jesus. He wants to honor and celebrate Jesus. This is similar to the language of, of finding the treasure in a field, and you sell everything to possess it, and then in your joy, you possess it. Look who I found. Look who I've met. You must meet Jesus as well. 
And Levi celebrates and honors Jesus with his friends. He made a great feast in his house for him. And he invited a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. That phrase reclining at table was sort of the Roman custom. The table might be about yay high off the ground and there'd be pillows scattered around. You sort of lie on your side and eat. Reclining at table. And here's Jesus. And then show up the Pharisees. Now they certainly wouldn't have attended because their entire charge was... Why, why, why are you there eating with those people? So presumably after the fact, the party's over. And they don't quite yet have the guts to come and challenge Jesus, but they come and start grumbling to his disciples. And they say, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So what's, what's at the heart of their complaint? Well, we've already studied how the, how the law of uncleanness works when we looked at the, the man with leprosy. The assumption from the Pharisees' point of view is these people are not ceremonially clean. They're sinners. They're engaged in wicked conduct. That term sinner was used by the Pharisees to govern all types of people and occupations that they didn't approve of, anything from prostitution to simply um, godless or really anything. I mean, they start throwing around terms like that to just about anybody who gets in their way or angers them. The point is this. From the Pharisees' point of view, the people at this party are not God-fearing religious people. They're not the good guys. These are not the people who are showing up at the temple every week with their sacrifices. They're not the people who are observing the law. From the Pharisees' point of view, they were the good guys and they're the bad guys. The good guys were the religious people. They're the ones trying to honor God. The bad guys are people like this. And they're, they're upset because Jesus is eating with them. And, and there's two... There's two reasons they'd be upset or they'd be offended. One is the issue of contamination. And how do you know whether or not any of these people is unclean? Whether any of these people have have done anything to defile themselves? If there's a prostitute present, certainly she's unclean. And you understand how this works. They're eating from common bowls. They're on the table. You touch the table. The table is unclean. You put your hand on the bowl. The bowl's unclean. How on earth can a righteous and good, godly rabbi like Jesus and his disciples eat with such people without risking becoming unclean? Well, we already know the answer to that, don't we? That Jesus doesn't become contaminated, rather his holiness is catching. The second line of thought for why they would be offended is that table fellowship implies a mutual acceptance. To sit at table fellowships, to accept one another. And so they would never dare do this lest they think these sinners and tax collectors are somehow accepted by them. No, the Pharisees held them in contempt because they believe God held them in contempt. And they separated themselves from them. How can Jesus recognize these people and be recognized by them? How, how can that happen? And notice their self righteousness. Notice their sense of judgment. You know, that that is the danger always with religion. Make no mistake, despite the catchy catchphrases, Christianity is a religion. It's the true religion. James says true and undefiled religion involves visiting orphans and widows in their distress. Christianity is a religion. The danger of religion is we begin to think we're the good guys and they're the bad guys. When the reality is we're all the bad guys and Jesus is the good guy. And so Jesus has to correct the Pharisees' 
complaint. This is, this is a frequent complaint, by the way. A few chapters later in Luke 15, they'll pick this up again. Tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, oh no, this man receives sinners and eats with them. This is something that keeps tripping them up. In fact, the three parables that follow, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the prodigal son, are all taught in response to this exact same complaint. We'll get there eventually. This is a recurring problem for the Pharisees. They they, they never get cured of their self-righteousness. They never stop thinking they're the good guys. Everyone else is the bad guys. They have a complaint. So Jesus explains and rebukes them. I love this. He gives an explanation, but his explanation indicts them. Let's read that, verses 31 and 32. Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus' explanation and rebuke. The the point he's making is this. Not that the Pharisees are not sick. There's a real irony here. We, the reader, get to see. We get to see the sickness, the self-righteousness, the sin, the judgment, the hatred, the despising of the Pharisees. But what Jesus is saying is, let's grant your assumption that you're the good guys. Don't you know it's the bad guys, the sick people who need a savior? He's the physician He's the physician for those who are sick. The sickness, of course, being sin. And since the Pharisees didn't recognize they had a great problem with sin, he's saying, I'm I'm here for those people who recognize that. You know, this is one of the reasons why John the Baptist's ministry prepared the way for Jesus. Because what was the fundamental message of John the Baptist? Repent. He was exposing sin. He was exposing hypocrisy. Repent and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Why? Because only those who recognize they are sick will be looking for a doctor, will be looking for a physician. What's the Pharisees' problem? They don't recognize they're sick. Now, we, the reader, do. So we see that. These tax collectors and sinners did. We also gives us some insight into what Jesus is doing. He's not just partying and living it up with the tax collectors and sinners, but rather he's, he's dealing presumably with their sin. Because look at the next line. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus isn't just sort of you know, having a good old time with these people. He's engaged in ministry. And he's telling us something about, again, we're learning about what it means to be a disciple, what it meant for Levi to come follow Jesus. Presumably then, Levi was aware of his sin, was aware of his need. And we see in his forsaking everything, Levi's repentance, because Jesus calls such people to repentance. He came to those who would recognize their sin, and he calls such people to repentance. And that's what the gospel call continually. It's turn to Christ from all these things. And repentance and faith are, are part of one action. They're flip sides of the same coin. To, to turn and trust in Jesus is to turn from all else. And to turn from our gods and our idols is how we turn to Jesus. I think it's wonderful news, though. What Jesus is saying is this, and this is really good news. There is nobody too sinful. There's nobody too ostracized. There's no one too dirty, too filthy, too broken, too corrupt that Jesus won't come and have a meal with you, have fellowship with you, if you're willing to recognize that and if you're willing to turn from that. If you're here today and you think you've 
just messed your life up. If you want cleansing, Jesus offers it. See, the Pharisees were thinking you had to get clean before you could come to God. Well, Jesus is saying you come to Jesus for cleansing. That's good news. That is the best news. You don't need to get clean to come to Jesus. You come to Jesus to get clean. No one is too dirty. No one is too weak. No one is too poor. Sadly, as we see with the Pharisees, there are far too many who are too good, too wise, too great, too rich, too powerful to see their need. The great irony is that these these Pharisees are just as dirty in their own way. Yes, they didn't do those things, but they did other sins. And all of us fall into the condemnation of sin. All of us are guilty. All of us following the various desires of our hearts. Some of our sins are more external, right? Some of them are more obvious. And so you, you can, some sins show more. But pride, self-righteousness, they're just as offensive to God even not more so than some of the more overt and obvious sins. And here's Jesus willing to eat, willing to fellowship with, willing to accept those who recognize their need and those who will turn from their sin to him. Doesn't, doesn't matter if you're a tax collector, a prostitute, a sinner, Jesus will sit down and have a meal with them if they recognize their need of healing and if they'll heed his call to repentance. And what joins this, this passage now as we move now into the second section, what may seem unlikely, we've ended the call of Levi. He'll show up more in the narrative, but for now he's sort of set aside, is that the Pharisees are keep pressing. That's the first answer. They, they sort of came up to Jesus' disciples grumbling. Jesus is aware of what's going on, and he rebukes them, and he explains himself, but they're not done yet. So they said to him, verse 33, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. So now we've moved on from who Jesus eats and drinks with to simply the fact that Jesus and his disciples eat and drink at all. See, it's one discussion. Now, Levi is no longer in view, but the, the conflict with the Pharisees and Jesus is what's in view. And, and this is the same discussion. He responds to their first challenge. They drop that. They come back with their next offense. And we'll see in chapter 6 that they're really just looking for ways to get him. Okay, so what's the nature then of their, of their second complaint, the Pharisees' complaint to Jesus? Well, it's the way he's conducting his ministry. It's the way that he is conducting his ministry. Now, when we were studying Zechariah, if you, can, if you can think back that far, the book of Zechariah, chapter 7 begins with the, with the Jews sending a delegation to ask the Lord a question. And in chapter 7, verse 2 and 3, the people, sent, the people of Bethel sent Sherezer and Regem Melech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I've done for so many years? And I think this is sort of the rabbinic, the Pharisaic tradition coming out of this, that ever since Israel was taken into captivity, and if you remember Israel's history, they were an independent nation all the way up until the Babylonian captivity. And after they were taken into captivity in Babylon, under Nebuchadnezzar, even though they were turned, they were always under foreign rule. 
whether it's the Medo-Persians, whether it's the Assyrians, whether it's the Greeks or the Romans, they never again achieved independent status. And starting in the captivity in Babylon, we see in Zechariah, they began to fast and to mourn and to humble themselves. They, they began to hear God's rebuke. Now, in Zechariah, God's first response to them was, are you, are you really fasting for real or just for show? And then he goes on to address the actual issue. Well, the Pharisees continued this tradition. Israel was in a low state. The country needs to return to God. The country needs to, to humble itself. The sinners and the tax collectors need to become good law-keeping Jews. Then God will exalt them. Then God will exalt us. And so they, they were fasting regularly. Interestingly enough, with all the laws in the Mosaic Law, there's only one commanded fast. Once a year, the Day of Atonement. That's it. All the other fasts are voluntary. There's no commanded fast in the law of Moses except for the fast associated with Passover. And they'd made them up. And that's not necessarily a bad thing to do. They, they recognize that they're being disciplined by the Lord. They're humbling themselves. That's part of the reason why John the Baptist and his disciples fasted. I mean, if you remember, John the Baptist's whole ministry was get ready, get ready, he's almost here. And how do you get ready? You humble yourself. How do you get ready? You repent. You, you recognize your sin. How do you, how do you get ready to receive Jesus? You start dealing honestly with who and what you are, and there's no way you can deal honestly with who and what you are without being humbled. And so it was fitting for John the Baptist and his disciples to, to have this posture of, of self-abasement, contrition. That's not the posture of Jesus and his disciples. Jesus and his disciples are eating and drinking. And again, this is, again, another one of the issues they kept bringing up over and over. Turn, turn to, uh, to Luke chapter 7. Just, just another two chapters. And here we're going to learn that the Pharisees' fasting was not genuine. Because in... in in Luke chapter 7, verse 31, Jesus rebukes them. To what shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. What Jesus is saying in that rebuke is this, that some people are just never happy. If you're looking for reasons to reject God and his messengers, you'll find them. They're like kids who are like, we're going to play the wedding game. We're going to sing the happy song. And we're going to play the wedding game. And oh, John the Baptist didn't want to play. John the Baptist came wearing camel skin, eating locusts and wild honey. He was an aesthetic. Oh, no, we don't want that. And then, okay, okay, if you don't want John the Baptist, here comes Jesus. Oh, no, it's time to play the funeral game now. We're going to play a dirge. Some people are never happy. And so it's not a genuine issue much like those people in, in Zechariah chapter 7, their, their, their religion is for show. Their fasts are for show. Part of Jesus' teaching elsewhere is when you're going to fast, don't let everybody know. 
You know, wash your face, put on clean clothes, don't sound a gong and announce it. You know, by the way, I'm fasting today. It's my third day. No, just, just if you're gonna do it to honor God, fasting can be a, can be a legitimate means of, of drawing near to God. Certainly John the Baptist, as he was leading his disciples and doing it, was doing it righteously. You can do it for right and for wrong reasons. The Pharisees are, are doing it for the wrong reasons. But I want you to notice Jesus' explanation and rebuke. Again, this is the pattern. The Pharisees come up with their problem. And what they're doing now, they're, they're getting clever. They know there's hostility between the Pharisees and Jesus, but they bring in John the Baptist. Hey, Jesus, how come your disciples, you and your disciples, don't follow the pattern of John the Baptist, don't follow the pattern of the Pharisees? Notice they're not challenging him that he's not obeying Scripture. There are, there are no scriptural commands for fasting. But this is the tradition handed down. This is the way things have been. And in a sense, rightly so, because from the close of the Old Testament until John the Baptist's coming, the posture is one is humble expectation. Humble expectation. The, The king will come. The Messiah will come. Let's get ready. Let's humble ourselves, abase ourselves. That's what John the Baptist is doing. Jesus' answer, his rebuke, takes two forms. First, he reveals that he is the bridegroom whose friends must rejoice. He is the bridegroom whose friends must rejoice. Jesus said to them, can you make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Now, this is another remarkably bold claim of Jesus on two levels. The first is simply this. The reason why he and his disciples act differently is based entirely on this argument on who he is and how important he is. I mean, th- think about the answer. I am such an important person that those who realize who I am can't help but rejoice. I mean, I know you and I may feel that way sometimes. You know, you're very lucky to know me. But, but Jesus is serious here. I'm the bridegroom. And people like Levi, who've, who've wrapped their heads around that, are excited, they're rejoicing, they want their friends to, to, to meet me. It's also bold because the, the, the bridegroom language is again one that has Old Testament antecedent. God's response, if you remember, in Zechariah to, to their question after he first rebuked their hypocrisy and why they were fasting in chapter eight, he says this, The word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, the fasts of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth month and the fast of the seventh and the tenth shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness, cheerful feasts. Remember, we studied that. I'm gonna turn your your fasting into feasting, but even more to the point, turn turn to Isaiah 61. If you remember, Isaiah 61 is the passage that in Luke chapter 4, Jesus read and said, that's me, and that's what I'm here to do. Isaiah 61, just look at the first two verses there. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. And he didn't quote that last bit because Jesus will fulfill that bit in his second coming. 
won't he, when he returns. But Jesus read all the way up to nearly the end of verse 2, and he says, that's me. That's what I'm here to do. Here today, in your presence, in your hearing, this scripture is fulfilled. Jump down to verse 10. Same, same section, talking about the same thing. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. You were singing about that, Jim, weren't you, and Joanna? For he has covered me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. It's a part of the fulfillment of this passage that, that Jesus quotes and says is about him will be this bridegroom image and language, this rejoicing, this exaltation, which we're seeing in Levi. Turn to Isaiah 62. Isaiah 62, again, look at verse 5. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God shall rejoice over you. Jesus says, yeah, I'm the bridegroom. And because I'm the bridegroom, because I'm the one who these passages are speaking about, it is only fitting for those who get that, who have eyes to see and ears to hear, to rejoice, to celebrate. How on earth could they possibly fast anymore? How on earth could they possibly stop themselves but for shouting for joy? He's the bridegroom, and, and, and by making that claim, he's the one who was predicted in the Old Testament. We've just looked at that in Isaiah and Zechariah. And ultimately, the bridegroom imagery and metaphor is going to be fulfilled in Christ's second coming. There's a, there's a sense in which the king is here, and even in this passage, Jesus hints at it. He says there's going to come a day where the bridegroom's taken away from them, and then, then they'll be sad. But while he's here, they rejoice, and then by implication, when he returns, they will rejoice. But in, in Luke chapter 12, back in Luke now, if you turn over to Luke chapter 12, Verses 35 and 36. Stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. That's part of how Jesus describes his return. But then if you turn all the way to the last book in the Bible, Revelation chapter 19, how does the story end? How does the climax and culmination of human history on this planet end? It ends with a wedding feast, doesn't it? Revelation 19, verses 7 through 9. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. The fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. So Jesus is the one who will bring in a messianic kingdom and the inauguration of this messianic kingdom is likened to a marriage feast where Jesus unites himself with his bride, the church, 
and the, the language in the Old Testament of the hills dripping, running with wine, honey, the, the unprecedented prosperity, the restrictions of the curse, this glad time will come when Jesus returns. And what he's saying is, while the king is here, while the bridegroom is here, even though there will be times after he's taken up where they will fast, they can't help but rejoice. It's predicted in the Old Testament. It's fulfilled ultimately in his second coming. And Jesus is saying, that's me. It's a bold claim. But he's saying to the Pharisees, you, you don't understand who I am. If you understood who I was, you'd be rejoicing too. And then he, he gives a second answer. You cannot mix the old with the new. You cannot mix the old with the new. Verse 36, he also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment, puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new. The piece from the new will not match the old, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst, and the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed, but new wine must be put into fresh wineskins, and no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says the old is good. Okay, what's going on here? There's three Three sayings here introduced as a parable. And a parable is a, is a way of describing something. You lay them alongside of each other. If they're parallel lines, you know how that works? A parable, that, that's the notion. And they line up next to each other. And you look at the one thing and it helps you understand the other. So how do these three metaphors help us understand why Jesus' ministry and why the tone of it and why the actions of himself and his disciples are so different from the Pharisees, from the disciples of John the Baptist? The, the ultimate answer is this. You can't mix the old with the new. Jesus, as he's announced being the bridegroom, is bringing in a messianic age. He is inaugurating a messianic age. The miracles that he does inaugurate that. They promise to that. Now, he'll go away and there'll be a time where we exist awaiting his return. But when he returns, that, that wedding feast begins and so because Jesus is bringing something new, his whole point is this. You can't mix conduct and reactions that are appropriate with the Messiah who has come with the old position of anticipation. So the law was a tutor leading us to Christ. The people are waiting. The Old Testament is saying, wait, he's coming, he's coming. John the Baptist shows up. He's almost here. And so they're in this sort of expectant position of waiting, of humbling, of self-abasement. And then he arrives, and the Pharisees don't like change. You notice that religious people often don't like change. Yeah, how, yeah sorry, I won't, I won't tell my bad jokes. Sorry. Um, um, so let's look at these three examples quickly. The first, you cannot sew new cloth on old. And I want you to notice in these, in these two illustrations, first of the garment and then of the wineskins, Jesus emphasizes both get ruined. When you try to hybridize, when you try to syncretize and put them together, you ruin both. He told them a parable, no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it onto an old. Why? If he does, he'll tear the new. So if you try to take an old garment that is a hole and you want to make a patch from a new garment, you tear a chunk off the new garment, now you've got a new garment with a big hole in it. That's ruined. And the new fabric doesn't match the old fabric, so that's really no good. That's the first illustration. By trying to mix the two, you ruin both. And then the exact same point gets made in the um, parable of the wineskins. You cannot put new wine into old wineskins. 
if you know anything about leather and leather tanning, leather can stretch and expand. I remember when I, um, my dad got me my first baseball glove. Yes, I have played baseball. One of, the things, one of the things you do is you oil the glove, right? And then you take that ball and you throw it in. Why? You're stretching and forming a pocket in it, right? Because leather will do that. And so wine ferments. And as it ferments, it releases gas. And so you have to put new wine in new wineskins so that as the fermentation occurs, as the gas gets released, the leather can stretch with it. What's going to happen if you put new wine in a fully stretched wineskin? It's going to burst. It's obvious enough. But again, notice how Jesus draws attention to both being ruined. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst and the skins from the skins, and it will be spilled. So the, the new wine's now spilled. The skins will be destroyed. You ruin both. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And again, notice, notice what Jesus is saying before we look at the last saying. He's bringing something fundamentally and qualitatively new. Now, he hasn't said this yet, but as we keep reading through Luke's gospel, what's he bringing? He's bringing the new covenant. What's he bringing? He's bringing unrestricted access to God so that Jews and Gentiles alike, without going to a temple, without offering sacrifice, without having to observe food laws, can worship and serve the living God. Now, he hasn't said any of that yet. All he said is, I'm the bridegroom, and what I'm about and what my disciples are about, you can't mix with the old way of doing things. That's all he's said so far. But it's a bold claim. If you understood who I was, you'd be happy to, and what I'm about is new. That's the thing you can't miss. New and old, new and old, new and old, new wine, old wine, new clothes, old clothes. He makes this bold claim to them. And then in his final, final line, which can be somewhat confusing, he says, no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. And this can be confusing because Jesus has repeatedly identified himself as the new I think what he's doing here is rather simple. He's simply explaining to the Pharisees why it is they don't like what he is about and what he is teaching. There's a danger when you get accustomed to the old and drink the old wine. There's a danger of, of not wanting to change. You know, we're quite comfortable in our position of expectation. We got it figured out. And we like how we're kind of at the top of the pyramid in this current ordering of things. Yes, Israel's under Rome's thumb. Yes, we're mourning and we're fasting and we're waiting for God. But honestly, we're quite comfortable with where we're at in the system. And if you're bringing in something totally new, where tax collectors and sinners and Pharisees are going to sit levelly at the same table, we're not sure if we're into that. I mean, you realize the, the, Jesus calls a tax collector and Simon the Zealot to be his disciples. The zealot was simply a nice way of talking about a terrorist. The zealots were Jews who would attack Rome when they could, killing officials, burning things out. They, they were anti-government. They weren't going to wait. They're going to give God a hand in overthrowing Rome. He has a tax collector and a zealot as part of his band. Jesus, one of the new things he is about is taking down those walls, the wall of division between Jew and Gentile, Pharisees didn't like that. We're, we're fine. We, we're quite comfortable with our old wine. Thank you very much. And they perish. So, so what, is, what does all this then mean, mean for us? Well, I think it means a couple things. 
The first is understand who Jesus is. What have we learned more about Jesus today? We've learned that he is the one the Old Testament predicted would usher in a kingdom, rejoicing, celebration. He is the bridegroom. He is the bridegroom. He is, he is the one who has come to claim his bride. That's what bridegrooms do. They go, they prepare their, their home, and then they go get their bride. And, and likewise, Jesus will return for his bride, who, as you keep reading through Luke, you learn is us. He's the bridegroom. But what we also learn is this, that biblical truth is not simply a matter of intellect. What does Jesus say? If you're a friend of the bridegroom, you can't help but rejoice. One of the reasons why we sing on Sunday morning is we have some glimpse. I mean, I know in my own heart, my own unbelief, there are times where it gets clouded over, but when we see it, your, your heart should shout for joy. If, if you believe you've come to faith in Jesus and you can't identify with this joy, I've, I've got to ask you based on what Jesus says here, do you really know him? Not that you're all the time celebrating and partying. We do, we do live in a tension of time where there's both fasting and feasting. We know who he is. The kingdom has is, is been announced. It's not here yet. We're waiting. We're awaiting his return. But do you, like Levi, want to share and announce and introduce this Savior to your friends? And ultimately, what does it mean to follow Jesus? It means to hand over everything in your life to him and follow him. It means without exception, without condition, without caveat. Say, okay, Lord, I'll lead where you follow. For 11 out of the 12 apostles, that led to martyrdom and death. And Levi forsook everything and followed Jesus. But he did it with joy. And that's the thing I want you to get. The call to follow Jesus is a demanding call but it's a joyful call. We tend to think of repentance and self-denial and as scary things. And there, there is some scariness about it, quite honestly. But oh, for those who've, who've turned to Christ, the joy they have. You, you get to know the bridegroom. And today, Jesus is offering that same call to all of us to follow him, to put down the distractions, to put down the idols, to put down... Whatever it is we're serving that isn't him. And to come and know him and eat with him and fellowship with him and rejoice with him and follow him. That is his will for us. And for those of us in whom we can't help but rejoice. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord God, we thank you for revealing who you are in your word. And Lord, we thank you that predicted many, many millennium ago, you have sent your son to claim his bride and to cleanse his bride and to present her to himself spotless and without wrinkle. And we recognize that we are right now dirty, corrupt, tainted and stained. And just as your son cleansed the leper and made him clean and just as he forgave the sins of the paralytic and made him clean, so too you are you're cleansing us both practically and you have removed our sins from us and we have come to know you and we rejoice. Lord, I just pray that you would help us to live in that joy. Help us to follow your son wherever he may lead. Give us the faith and the courage to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.
The Lord bless you, the Lord keep you, the Lord make his face shine upon you and give you peace. You are dismissed.